Luke 14, but thanks be unto God who always causes us to triumph. Always causes us to triumph. We've been in a series, I'm calling these devotional disciplines or back to basics, habits of righteousness. I've chosen, cho- I've chosen topics that apply to all Christians, not just to older saints or not just to younger people or not just to married folks or single folks or folks with children. These disciplines will benefit any Christian. And this, today's discipline is the discipline of a victorious Christian life. Now, this is a rhetorical question. I don't need you to answer, but just think in your own mind. Is there any sin that you find consistently trips you up? Anything that you find, boy, I wish I could change this one thing about my habits, about my life. The truth is God wants all of us to live in consistent victory. And he's provided all the help that we need to get there. But sometimes we just can't seem to make it. The essence of all these devotional disciplines that I'm giving you, of course, is a response, a consistent and conscious response to the Holy Spirit. We started with the discipline of prayer. The discipline of prayer is just a consistent and conscious response. Ah, I need to pray. When the Holy Spirit puts it on your heart to pray. Now, you should have times that you've set aside for prayer. Other times things come up suddenly and the Holy Spirit reminds you to pray, but it's a consistent and conscious response to the Holy Spirit to prayer. The second discipline was the discipline of meditation. Again, a constant and consistent response. Okay, I need to be thinking God's word. And whether you've written it out on a card or whether you've memorized the verse, you're just going to go over that verse again and again. And by meditating on God's word, Biblical meditation is not emptying your mind. Biblical meditation is filling your mind with God's word. By meditating on God's word, you actually change your heart. You change your thinking. You change your will. And you line it up with God's heart, with God's thinking, with what God wants. The third discipline was the discipline of giving. Whether it's giving in the offering here, giving to the poor. It's a conscious and consistent response to respond to the Holy Spirit prompting you to give. And it goes beyond that. We didn't cover this other section, but it's a constant, it's a conscious and consistent response to ordering my finances. Maybe you might use the word budgeting so that you can give to the Lord. The fourth discipline we talked about, and as I've prepared these, I'm beginning to think I should have moved it right up to the front, and that was the consistent and conscience, conscious response of responding to the Holy Spirit, recognizing that God the Holy Spirit is a person of the Godhead. He dwells inside of you. If you're a Christian, he's right there inside of you. You can't get rid of him. You can't put him in a closet and then go do something when he's not around. He's always there. But learning to respond to him That was the fourth one. And then last week, we saw the discipline of thanksgiving, the intentional decision to cultivate gratitude. And when the Holy Spirit says, be thankful, to say, thank you, Lord. So all of these are a conscious and consistent response to the Holy Spirit. Today's discipline, the discipline of victorious Christian living, is also a response to the Holy Spirit who dwells inside you, who 
tells you, hey, you can't do that, or hey, you should do this, and, here's the good point, enables you, empowers you to do what God has called you to do, to keep God's law. The discipline of victorious Christian living is a daily struggle against sin, against its temptations, and against our old man's warped thinking, sinful thinking. Now, the reason I put that in there, that it's a daily struggle, is because I don't want to give anyone the impression that you reach a point in the Christian life where there's no more temptation, there's no more sin in your life. There's always a temptation to sin, but God always wants you to be victorious. He always causes us to triumph. It's not that he wants you to be victorious 50% of the time or 90% of the time or 99% of the time. God's plan is that we're victorious 100% of the time. But victory doesn't mean there's no struggle. In fact, really, how could you be victorious if there was no struggle? Uh, Because we're in the football season, imagine if you have a game scheduled, uh, team A shows up, the referees show up, and team B doesn't show up. Well, team A wins by forfeit, but that's not really victory. I mean, you put the, the W in the win column, but they didn't really win. They just, well, they won by forfeit. You're not going to ever win over sin by forfeit in your life. Sin is there. We have an adversary, the devil. He's real. He's there. We have a world that constantly says, come on, uh, come join us. We've got a lot of fun things to do over here. So it's a daily struggle, but it is a victorious struggle. It's a I won today struggle. So there's three things. First, I mentioned the struggle is real. Number two, God wants you to consistently win. And that leads me to number three, consistently winning is worth the struggle. How are we conformed to the image of God's son? Partly through that victorious Christian struggle. How do we learn that the power of God is real in our lives through that consistent, victorious struggle? I'm preparing a message. I believe it will be next Sunday night. Trophies of God's grace. People that I've met whose lives are so dramatically changed by the grace of God that it can only be God's work in their life. It's worth the struggle. Now, because it is a struggle... Well, let me use a different word. It's, it's not just a struggle. It's a war. It's a war. It's spiritual warfare, but it's a war. Now, some of you are working out at Travis Air Force Base, and daily you are training for a possible conflict. And as an American citizen, I'm grateful for that. But there's a difference between training in peacetime and training in wartime. And I think the main difference is in a war, you realize you could die if you mess up. Now, we don't die physically when we give in to sin, but sin is incredibly destructive in our lives. And when we lose to sin, God doesn't ever intend for us to lose, but when we are defeated by sin, we always give something up. It always brings a little bit of damage and destruction to our lives and often damage and destruction to the lives around us. So because it's a war, we need to plan. We need to have a strategy for defeating, uh, uh, for winning the war and defeating the enemy. We need to stockpile weapons. We're going to talk about that today, stockpiling weapons. We need to enlist fellow soldiers. We need to train together. 
Those of you in the military understand this. You know, sometimes we think of uh, some soldier, he's all by himself, he's dropped behind enemy lines with a water gun and he takes on the enemy. That's not how war works. In fact, you would rather bring overwhelming force. You want to bring more guys than the enemy has. Look around you. You have fellow soldiers in this room, people who will stand by you, people who will pray with you, people who will say, hey, I understand your struggle. I know that it's real. I can help you understand God's word so you can have God's grace to win the victory. Enlist fellow soldiers, train together, know the enemy's strategy, prepare. Yes, our enemy is powerful and relentless, but the Bible says we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're not just conquerors. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Hold your place in Romans chapter 5. Turn over the next book is 1 Corinthians. Find 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and look with me at verse 57. It's a long chapter, so you're almost to the next chapter. But 1 Corinthians 15, 57. First Corinthians 15, 57 says this, but thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to see that verb. He gives us the victory. Doesn't charge us for it. We don't earn it. We don't work toward the victory. No, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So today I'm going to ask you from time to time, two questions, but I'm going to give you the answers. And I want you, when I ask these questions, I want you to remind me what the answers are. The first question is, who gives us the victory? And the answer is God. Thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory. And then the second question I'm going to ask you is, who paid the price? And the answer is Jesus. Jesus paid a price to give us that victory. I want to encourage you, don't squander the victory that you've been given, because while it may be free to you, you didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. We didn't get to a point where we deserve the victory. We may not have paid for the victory, but Jesus Christ paid for the victory. And for his sake alone, we should continue this daily victorious struggle against sin. So who gives us the victory? God. And who paid the price? Jesus. Keep that in mind. We're gonna, I'm going to ask you that question a couple of times. Now, turn back to Romans chapter 5, and we're going to pick it up in verse 20. Romans chapter 5 and verse 20. Romans 5, 20 says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, Grace did much more abound. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. If you've been alive any length of time, and all of you have in here, you recognize that our society, our culture, is becoming increasingly wicked. But no matter how wicked our society is around us, and yes, we could go to other cultures that are even more wicked than ours, no matter how much wickedness surrounds us, Guess what is always greater? God's grace. Where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. Look with me at Romans 6 and verse 14. 
Romans 6.14 says, For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you're not under the law, but under grace. No matter how overwhelming sin might seem, no matter how much it might seem as if I have no other choice but to do wrong, God's grace frees me from that. And sin no longer has dominion over me. Because when we become Christians, there's a change in our resources. And that is, we have the grace of God. Before you were a a child of God, you didn't have God's grace to resist sin. And so it must have seemed often that the sin was just overwhelming. Many of us know, I, I know, what it is to be in bondage to sin and have a particular sin that consistently trips you up, that you consistently fall into and, and you're, you, just, you see it even coming and, and you know it's a problem, but you don't know what to do with it. I'm telling you today that God's grace is sufficient for any sin you might face. Any temptation you might face, God's grace is sufficient because where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. And don't let sin have dominion over you. You're not under the law anymore. You're under grace. God's grace is sufficient. Now let's start with the truth. Part of God's grace is his forgiveness. And so let's start with the truth that no matter what sin we may have done, God will forgive us. And we can be thankful for that. We can be thankful that his mercy is unlimited. But let me remind you, you don't want to rely on God's forgiveness. You want to rely on his grace to experience that daily victory. There's a a nephew of mine, and he enjoys riding motorcycles. How many of you enjoy riding motorcycles? Okay, I enjoy riding motorcycles, but the people in my life, like my wife, say, don't, you can't. So, okay, all right. Motorcycles can be a lot of fun. Well, this nephew of mine, he's young. He feels like he is invincible. And he bought a motorcycle, and he was traveling down one of the Texas interstates, Dallas-Fort Worth area. He was traveling down the interstate. He told me, I heard this story from his lips. He told me he thought he was going about 100 miles an hour. So he's going about 100 miles an hour. The interstate there is about five lanes. And so because he's going 100, guess what? He's over here in the leftmost lane going 100 miles an hour. Well, it's also a warm day, and uh, he had on earlier a... Uh, 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 a sweatshirt, a sweater of some sort, but it had become too warm for that. So he had taken that off and he had stuffed it into his backpack and he put his backpack on before he took off on his 100 mile an hour motorcycle trip. Well, what he didn't do, and I can see myself doing this, he didn't zip the bag up fully. And at 100 miles an hour, that bag had a lot of wind on it and that zipper was becoming, uh, was undoing itself in the wind and that sweatshirt was coming out of the bag. And he's going down a highway about 100 miles an hour when that sweatshirt comes out of the bag and somehow falls into the chain and the rear tire. And immediately that tire locks up. And he goes from 100 to zero in a very short time. He also loses control of the bike and by God's grace and mercy, he somehow skids across all five lanes of a Texas interstate and ends up on the shoulder with just some bruises and some bumps. His rear tire is wrecked. I mean, it's just the, the, the rubber is just shorn off it. So he can't drive it anywhere. So he calls his dad. His dad uh, is, is tied up. I think it was in another, another city. His dad calls a friend who also rides motorcycles. His, his dad's friend arrives to pick him up, sitting there on the side of the interstate, and says, 
you are fortunate that you did not die today. Now, what if I'm, and my nephew is, is grateful to God. Don't, don't misunderstand. Would, could you imagine if my nephew said to me, you know what I learned from that? I can go 100 miles an hour and it doesn't matter. I'll be okay. No, no, no. That's the wrong lesson. The right lesson is zip up your bag and drive the speed limit. That's the right lesson. But you know what? So often when God forgives our sin and the damage and the destruction isn't as bad as we anticipated it might be, you know what lesson we take from that? Oh, I can sin and I'll just ask God to forgive me. That's the wrong lesson. Now, God will forgive you. I'm not saying he won't. God's forgiveness is amazing. Great is thy faithfulness. Thy mercies are new every morning. I understand that. But you don't want to rely on God's mercy because you have God's grace. You have God's grace to say no to sin and to say yes to God's will for your life. That's how great God's grace operates. And we're going to see this. I'm going to expand this. But God's grace says two things for us. God's grace changes what we want. It changes what our heart's desires are. It changes how we think. It literally changes who we are. And as I mentioned, I'm preparing a message on trophies of God's grace. People I know personally whose lives have been dramatically transformed by the grace of God. But it didn't start with their actions. It started on the inside. Changing what they wanted, changing how they thought, changing their character. And then it comes out in their conduct. Because God's grace also enables us to live godly in Christ Jesus, to do God's will, to say no to sin. So there's a change. When we became a Christian, there was a change in our resources. We now have God's grace that it changes who we are from the inside, our character, and comes out in our actions, our conduct. You ready for your questions? Here they are. Who gives us victory? God. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to deserve it. You don't have to work toward it. God gives us the victory. But who paid the price? Jesus. There's a change in our resources. There's a second change after we become Christians. And I've already mentioned it. But let's focus on this change in our heart. There's a change in our heart. There's a change in what we want after we become Christians. Now, the first time I see this in the passage is in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. Let me read it to you. Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Remember verse 20 said where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. And so some people were tempted to think, well, you know, Paul, if that's true, if the more I sin, the more evil I am, God's grace is even more than that. Why don't I just keep sinning and then God's grace will get all this glory? And Paul says to that question, God forbid. But let me show you a a second verse in Romans 6 that talks about this change of heart. Look with me at Romans uh, 6.21. Romans 6.21, Paul asks his audience, he says, What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? See, there's been a change in their heart. Before they could sin and they weren't ashamed of it. Maybe they were even proud of it. Maybe you have some friends who, because they are not Christians, they're not God's children. Boy, they are so proud of how much evil they can do. I've heard of people having contests, men having contests. How many women can I sleep with? Dumb contest. 
men who are so proud of how many drinks they can put away before they fall over uh, uh, unconscious. That is not something to be proud of. But in our sinful state, guess what? We're pretty proud of ourselves. He says, what fruit had ye then when you were not Christians of those things of which you are now ashamed? God's grace changes my heart. It changes how I think. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian and you understand what God's will is for your life, why would you say, oh, let's continue in sin that grace may abound. Let's let's just keep doing evil that God's grace will become even greater. Well, first of all, you're not understanding that, yes, God gives you the victory, but Jesus paid the price. It's my sin that put Jesus on the cross. The lady's saying about it, and that's a theologically correct statement. Jesus died because of my sin. There's no way I should continue in those behaviors, those attitudes, those, that thinking, that rebellion that caused my Savior to die in my place. There should be a change in my heart. Who would say, let's continue and say, let's just keep... Keep on sinning because God's grace is going to be sufficient no matter how big our sin is, no matter how great our sin is. Well, it would be someone who doesn't love God. Because the Bible says, if ye love me, God says to us, if ye love me, keep my commandments. Now, again, I I have to admit, it can be a struggle to keep God's commandments, but that's where God's grace comes in. Who says, let's, let's continue in sin. It doesn't matter. We'll just, we'll just sin. God will forgive us and his grace will get even bigger. Well, it's someone who doesn't comprehend how disastrous sin is. Sin, the Bible tells us sin is a killer. Here in Romans 6, very last verse, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. I didn't plan it this way, but just this week I heard a story from a friend whose friend died. And the root causes go right back to sin. Now you say, well, yeah, all death is because of sin. You're right. But I mean, she made some choices that ended in her death. Conscious choices that ended in her death. And sin was the root of that. Don't treat sin lightly. Again, Romans 6.21 says, What fruit had you then in those things whereof you are now ashamed? We ought to be ashamed of our sin. Sin destroys us. Sin destroys us physically. Sin destroys us morally. But most of all, sin destroys that fellowship that we have with God. Not the relationship you have to God. If you are a child of God, your sin will never come between you and God the Father again. Because you're in Christ. But the truth is, when I choose to sin, some some people say, well, I didn't choose to sin. Well, when you sin, it breaks that fellowship you have with the Father. Sin is destructive. Sin not only damages you, but sin damages the people who are around you. Sin always has an impact on the people around you. Sometimes that impact is obvious. Sometimes that impact is not so obvious, but sin damages the people around you. When my wife and I were flying to Mongolia on more than one occasion, we had to stay 
uh, in Seoul, South Korea. Now, staying in Seoul, South Korea was a lot of fun. Seoul is a modern city. You can do a lot of things in Seoul. And the best part about Seoul, South Korea, for us as Americans, was almost all of the signs are in English and Korean. There's a lot of soldiers, American soldiers, and I don't know why that choice was made, but you can get on a Seoul subway, go down to a Seoul subway station. All the stops are in English. You don't have to read Korean. So we really enjoy spending some time in Seoul. And so on several occasions, sometimes by our choice, sometimes by our airline's choice, we spent several days in Korea. And whenever we spent a Sunday in Korea, there was a church there in um, Seoul, uh, Itaewon, if I remember right, that, that had uh, services in English, and we would go to that church. And in that church was an American man, and uh, he had a Korean wife. And I didn't think anything of that, and we met them, and and then uh, the, the, the pastor who told me, my wife, that this American man had left his wife and had married this Korean lady. He was a missionary in Korea, and he had left his wife to marry this Korean woman. Now, that was sad. But you know, it was strange, not strange, it was providential that several years later, as my wife and I were traveling around the United States, we met a lady who grew up in Korea as a missionary's daughter, and her father had left her mother to marry a Korean lady. And I cannot tell you the damage that was in her heart. Nothing wrong if a man who's not married marries a Korean lady. That's not the issue. But if you leave your wife for another woman, you are going to damage your family. Men, sometimes we sort of act like, well, we, we can just do it. It's my life. It doesn't matter. It does matter. What we do affects other people. I have another situation in, in mind, not here in California, uh, a fella who was propositioning a, a young lady, and it has destroyed that young lady's faith. Even though, as far as I know, she didn't do anything wrong, I, not really that close to it, but I've talked with her father, and boy, she, she said to her dad, I don't think I can go to church anymore. Sin is destructive. We need to quit treating sin as if it's a plaything. It's a killer. Now, as Christians, there are some unacceptable sins. That if you were to come into church and tell just the person sitting next to you, hey, I do this, we would say, you can't do that. And because they're unacceptable, you know what we do with those sins? I mean, we, those people, us in this room. I'm not talking about those people out there. The unacceptable sins, those of us in this room, we hide those, don't we? But the Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. When Achan took that silver and gold and that good Babylonian garment out of Jericho, and he buried it in his family's tent, you know what he thought? I can get away with this. No one will ever know. But God knows everything. And it came out. And it not only caused Achan's death, but it caused his family's death as well. Maybe you're hiding one of those unacceptable sins. I have been told that in every church this size, there are at least a few men and sometimes a few women who are struggling with pornography. It's not something to play with. It's destructive. It's a killer. It it warps our minds it destroys us morally, 
and it's what put Jesus on the cross. Don't mess with pornography. In some cases, it may be drunkenness. Obviously, you wouldn't come to church drunk. You're too smart for that. But maybe over this last week, during a celebration, you had way too much to drink, and you have to admit, yeah, I was drunk. The Bible says, be not drunk with wine. Don't excuse it. Don't say, well, yeah, but I got a designated driver. No, God doesn't say, be not drunk with wine unless you have a designated driver. But there's also some acceptable sins that as Christians, we like to pretend are not so bad, but that God calls sin. Things like worry. We like to excuse our worry. My wife will tell you, most of the time I don't worry. But when I worry, I really worry. And my wife is smart enough not to say, honey, God has it under control. Quit worrying. I think she prays a lot for me. Worry is a sin just as bad as pornography or drunkenness in its offense to God. Understand. Maybe the results aren't as bad. Maybe the damage isn't as deep to our moral and our our physical uh, sides. But worry is a sin. Bitterness is a sin. Harboring unforgiveness against a fellow uh, uh, human being, regardless of its status, uh, their relationship to you, is always a sin. But I find that most people are bitter at those who are closest to them. It's not somebody who 20 years ago took your job and you missed a promotion at work. That's not the person you're bitter at. It's often a person we live with. It's a spouse, or it's a child, or it's a parent. It's, it's, it's someone in this church. When we were in Mongolia, my wife will tell you, there were two missionaries that, boy, they just kept butting heads and, and there was some real struggle there. And what was most frustrating to me as a, as a fellow missionary watching this from the outside, knowing both of them, trying to be a help to both of them, what was most discouraging or most distressing to me was they were both sent out by the same church. Not the same mission board, the same church. I, I said to my wife at one point, I think if I were the pastor of that church, I'd say, you two, you're coming back here to this church until we get this worked out. You can't be bitter at each other and serve God on the mission field. That's what I would have said as a pastor. You can't be bitter and harbor bitterness in your heart and say, well, it's okay. It's, it, it only affects me. No, it, it, yeah, it affects you, but it affects more than you. Bitterness is one of those acceptable sins we like to pretend are not so bad. Maybe it's corrupt and corrosive speech. I'm using corrupt speech from Ephesians chapter 4. Let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth. But often it's that corrupt and corrosive speech. It's that, we call it, we call it, we call it sarcasm. But it's really intended to be hurting and cutting and to make the other person feel small. There's no place for that in our lives. You say, well, other people do it. Yes, yes, that's that's true. Sarcasm gets a lot of play in our society, but that doesn't make sarcasm right. Saying cruel things to a a parent or to a child or to a spouse or to someone in this church because you're angry and you've been hurt, it's not acceptable. We like to pretend those things aren't so bad and say, well, you know, so-and-so is doing something worse than me. I'm not worried about so-and-so. I'm worried about me. I'm worried about you. Because the Bible says, thanks be unto God who always causes us to triumph. You don't have to speak that way. You say, well, you know, that's the way I was raised. 
So, where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. Well, you have to look around. All these other people, look what they're saying. Not acceptable. Anger, another one of those acceptable sins. We pretend it's not really that bad, but anger is incredibly destructive and damaging. Especially you fathers, husbands, your anger towards your wife or towards your children, incredibly destructive. Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Don't, it's, it's, it's so tempting because I know as a father and as a husband, when I get mad, boy, everyone else calms down. They do. In my house, when I get mad, everyone else calms down. But that's not the way to have a calm house. That doesn't cause my children to respect me more or my wife to love me more. It just plants the seed of anger and bitterness in each of my family members' hearts. That's what it does. And you say, well, yeah, but I I don't really get mad. I just get upset. You call it what you want. It's wrong. It's sin. And where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. Here's the excuse that I love to use. Yeah, but do you know what they did? You know, I'm angry because my daughter or my son or my wife, and we like to blame it on other people. But again, where sin, even somebody else's sin did abound, guess what? Much more abounds. God's grace for me to respond with love and patience and kindness and calmness to my family. Don't make excuses for these acceptable sins. Greed. Envy. Now, there, there are two ways that this goes, and, and both of them are equally sinful. One is that greed that leads us to poor choices. That greed that leads us to steal what doesn't belong to us. That greed that leads us to work so hard that our family is robbed of our time and our presence. That greed that causes us to make choices, trying to get rich quick. But there's a second direction that this greed and envy takes, and that's just that discontentment that sits in my heart and says, woe is me, my life is so bad. I don't have a Corvette like Marcos does. <laughs> what? You had a Corvette for a while, didn't you, Marcos? He sold it, didn't sell it to me, didn't even offer it to me. I wouldn't buy it. I wouldn't have bought it anyway. But you know what? That discontent where I wish I had something else, and I think that my happiness is dependent on a possession or a friendship, or anything else, is sin. Maybe it's acceptable to human beings, but it's never acceptable to God. There's one last acceptable sin that I want to mention today, and that's laziness. Laziness. When God says, hey, I need you to do this, and you say, you know what? No. I'm tired. We have our excuses. I'm tired. I've worked hard. It's somebody else's turn. But we know that God's asking us to do it. And sometimes it's not even a difficult matter. Young people, it can be as simple as making your bed. Do you know God wants us to make our bed? If our parents ask us to make our bed, and my mom faithfully asked me to make my bed, then it's sin when I don't make my bed. And you know why I didn't make my bed when I was a young man? Because I was too lazy. You know why I don't make it now? Because I asked my wife to make it. But seriously, laziness is just as sinful as any of these other things I've mentioned, isn't it? 
And here's our problem. We make, we always make excuses. We rationalize. We say, well, it's not as bad as, or so-and-so does worse, or it's only hurting me, or it's not hurting me. We, please, don't rationalize. Don't make excuses. Don't be satisfied with anything less than consistent victory over sin. Because the Bible says, thanks be to God, which always causes us to triumph. Sometimes our struggle with sin is because we haven't allowed God to change our heart fully like he wishes to do. We're like people who don't like spiders, so we destroy the spider webs. Guess what happens when you destroy the spider webs and you don't kill the spiders? The next day you have new webs. You've got to kill the spiders if you're going to get rid of the spider webs. And in our own lives, we've got to get to the root of our sinful condition. And that starts with my heart. And recognize that my heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And it will make excuses for the unacceptable sins. And it will make excuses for the acceptable sins. And God doesn't want my excuses. He wants my repentance. He wants me to agree with him that sin is sin and it's wrong and it's destructive. And ask him for that grace that I need to overcome that sin. So again... Quiz time. Who gives us the victory? God does. And who paid the price? Jesus. Let's not be satisfied with anything less than a change of heart that causes us to say, I am not going to be satisfied with anything less than complete victory over sin because God has given me the grace. There are two more points. We're going to pick this up next week. God also changes our thinking. And lastly, God changes our choices. But today, let's focus on these first two. God has changed our resources. Before we were Christians, yeah, we couldn't have helped it. We were in bondage to sin. We were, the Bible says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But now, we're going to see next week, Romans describes us as alive unto God. He's changed our resources. He's given us all the grace we need. And secondly, he has changed our heart. He's made us not satisfied He's with, with just the old way of living. And by the way, this is why so many times you'll have a Christian who is in more turmoil than a heathen person who is sinning. Because the Christian person who sins has a Holy Spirit who lives inside of him who constantly is saying, hey, you can't do that. Guess what? The heathen person over here, he doesn't have that. So he doesn't care. And I've seen Christians say, I don't understand it. Why does it bother me so much? I can't lie anymore. And he's always lying. Well, because he's a politician. No, I'm just teasing. Because he's a heathen. He doesn't have a choice. It doesn't bother him to lie because he doesn't have the Holy Spirit telling him to tell the truth. That isn't a problem. It's a good thing that you have a Holy Spirit who won't leave you alone. It's a good thing you have a Holy Spirit who says, you can't lie like that. You can't be greedy. You can't be lazy. You can't worry. You can't be bitter. You can't let your anger just go. You can't say that. We ought to be glad that we have the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. Because guess what? Outside of Jesus Christ, this heathen person has no hope in this life, and he has no hope in the next life. And we have hope. We have hope in this life that God will give us that consistent victory over sin and we have hope in the next life. And the hope in the next life is the old man is gone. There is no more temptation. 
There is no more pull to lust and envy and, and wickedness and lying and all the other things that, that trouble us now. Because God gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. Now I mentioned to begin this, that if we're going to be successful in this war, we have to plan We have to stockpile weapons. That weapon we're going to stockpile is the grace of God. Learn to lean into God's grace. Learn to enlist fellow soldiers and to train together in how God's grace impacts my life, how God's grace impacts your life. Now, let me remind us of our simple truth one more time. Who gives us victory? God does. And who paid the price? Jesus. Don't be satisfied with anything less than daily, consistent victory in your struggle against sin. Father, thank you for this passage in Romans that helps us understand your great grace that makes it possible for me and any one of your children to experience consistent victory. We don't have to live in the lust of the flesh. We don't have to allow the old man to determine what we're going to do. We don't We're not dominated by sin anymore, and we thank you for that. I ask your Holy Spirit to point out in my life, in the life of each of my hearers, what that sin is that they've been rationalizing and excusing. Whether it's an unacceptable sin that they would feel really awkward telling us about, or if it's an acceptable sin that, yeah, well, maybe I do, but other people, Father, forgive us for our rationalizations, for our excuses. I pray that as your Holy Spirit puts his finger on my sin, on our sin, that we would say, you're right, God, forgive me. And live in the grace that you give us to overcome that sin. Now, before I close this afternoon, with your heads bowed, your eyes still closed, let me ask you this question, question, these questions. What sin is dominating your life? whether it's those unacceptable sins, the acceptable sins. Either way, if the Holy Spirit is convicting you about it, here in a few moments as we have our invitation, I want you to say yes to God and no to yourself. I want you to confess to God that your sin is an offense against Him, you're wrong, and ask Him, commit to Him to use His grace every day to overcome that sin, whatever it is. Because I'm convinced, absolutely convinced, that God wants every Christian, every child of his, to experience consistent victory. So Father, as I close this prayer and I address you again, I ask that you would lead us to repentance, to holiness, to righteousness, so that your grace will have its full effect in our lives and we can bring you honor and glory. We love you, Lord. We want to keep your commandments. We need your grace to do that. So pour out your grace upon us at this time to bring conviction. We pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.